6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 8 through 10. We are in 2 Kings, and we are in session 3. We'll do session 3 and 4 tonight, two sessions back to back. And uh, we'll be dealing with chapters 8 through 10 in this session. Just to give you the perspective again, by way of review, we're dealing with two kingdoms. The, the kingdom divided after Solomon between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And uh, 1 Kings, covers we covered it up through, well, where it shows on the chart there. And uh, the northern kingdom goes from bad to worse. All bad kings, going, they get worse and worse until they finally get wiped out as God's judgment on them. That's over a period of about uh, over two centuries, and then God washes his hands of it. He went into the Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom went from bad to worse, but did have uh, about seven or eight good kings, and uh, covers about three there, an extra century out of all that. But in 606, they go into captivity, but to, to return because of God's, not because they deserved it, but because of God's commitment to the house of David. And that will echo all through these books as we explore the history of these two kingdoms, sometimes fighting, sometimes in alliance. Tonight we are in these in a, in the region just a little below from where we were last time, but in the early part, obviously, of the book from in the from Jeroboam through Athalia, the in the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Joram and Jehu in the northern kingdom. We're going to go to Athalia. How many of you knew that the house of Judah had a queen for a while? For six years, can you imagine? That comes as a shock to many Bible students to realize there was actually a queen on the throne of David for a short while. A usurper. We'll talk about that as we get into it. But be on your alert. There's two kings, and they're almost, almost, they, uh, they overlap a little bit. Jerome, uh, some Bibles will, uh, Jerome and Jerome, um, are both the same transliteration of the Hebrew. And some Bibles will, transliterate them differently to keep you from getting confused. And uh, we have not tried to do that too much, at least probably a little inconsistently, primarily so you'd be alert to who, whether you're talking about the northern or southern kingdom, and you get that from the context. But they're two different people, not, no relation, obviously. And also, there is Ahaziah, and uh, we encountered him at the end of First Kings in the northern kingdom. We're going to discover that Jehoram Jor- Jor- has a uh, son by the name of Ahaziah. Ahaziah that will be, that'll be prominent in uh, tonight's session. There's also Ahab and Jezebel not only had sons, they had a daughter. And this daughter is Athalia, and we're going to talk about her. Uh, she ends up marrying, um, uh, and, and, and by doing so, uh, intrudes herself as a usurper in the lines of Judah. We'll talk about that. And uh, so we're in 2 Kings chapter 8. And uh, let's just jump in. Then spake Elisha. Now we're, uh, by the way, this first episode that opens uh, chapter 8 really deals with God's marvelous care for those who trust Him, even in times 
where apostasy is popular. We're dealing with very, very um, spiritually dark times, especially in the northern kingdom. And uh, God does one thing after another to try to get their attention to no avail. But still, it's instructive. And as we watch God's extremes here, let's be sensitive to how it might apply to us for lots of reasons. Anyway, then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life. Remember from last time saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wherever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. God is sending a famine to the northern kingdom to get their attention, because of their apostasy. But through Elisha, this woman is tipped off to, to anticipate that. And uh, so he, he uh, directs her to leave the country temporarily for a seven-year period. And this is really intended to be punishment for apostasy, and you'll find in the in the Torah, Deuteronomy 11 and 28, and a number of places that kind of thing uh, highlighted. Verse 2, And the woman rose and did after the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. So, very interesting how often this happens. You may recall the study of Ruth, where Naomi does the same thing. Bitter famine in Bethlehem, she goes to Moab, in that case, to sojourn for 10 years, actually. But in any case, here she is, this woman that Elisha has uh, uh, been taking care of, uh, and uh, she's trusting the word of the man of God. So she left her home and, and for seven years. Okay, verse 3. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And so she's trying to get her property back. She's abandoned this property for seven years. And uh, someone obviously has taken it over in her absence. And she's she's not asking, by the way, for it to be returned to her free. She's willing to buy it back, since apparently it was a paternal inheritance to her. And uh, and that was guaranteed to every Israelite family by the law of Moses. Now, we, we need to be careful here. I won't make a big thing of it here because it's not essential to the study. But be sensitive to the fact that when they talk about buying and selling land, they're not talking about the way we do it in Fee Simple. We're used to selling the title, and we can pass that on to our heirs, etc., or whoever wants to buy it. Not in Israel. What they really bought and sold was the use of the land, because at various at certain periods it would return to its original owners, was the concept under the Jubilee and the sabbatical years and so forth. So recognize that we're talking about usage. In any case here, though, uh, the intent was that the land would stay with the families that it was originally ascribed to, and they might sell the use of it to pay some debts, but it, it, there were procedures by which it would return to them. So she's go, she went to the king, to, she went forth to the king to, to try to get her land back. And verse 4 says, The king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. Now, the fact that Gehazi is here tells you that this episode that is here chronicled isn't necessarily in chronological order. Because we remember from, from the, when Naaman the Syrian was there, that Gehazi, in, in, from his greed, ended up getting Naaman's leprosy. So Gehazi's out of the picture, chronologically from that day on, to the best of my understanding. I think this is a flashback. It's an episode that occurred earlier, inserted here by the writer to highlight uh, uh, an issue that will be relevant to uh, the story going on. But uh, anyway, we, we see um, Jehoram... Um, Talking to Gehazi, Elisha's servant, he's—I think—he's motivated more by curiosity than compassion to begin with. He tell me more all the great things that Elisha has done. It came to pass as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life. You remember that with Elisha? 
that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. Very startling that she actually must be available to interrupt. That's the impression you get here. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. So you get the impression somehow that while Gehazi is having this conversation with the king, that she somehow is able to bust in and, and speak for herself, and, and Elisha makes the identity here, and uh, uh, and on it goes. And so, um, now, her appearance apparently impresses Jehoram so, so um, uh, much that he asks her to fill in the details of Gehazi's story. So he'll even order, not only that the land goes back to her, but the proceeds from the sale of the land will also be given to her. When the king asked the woman, he told him, and the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. So the king has gone all the way from just curiosity to the point where he really establishes her. Part of this, the speculation of most commentators, the writer put this in here to demonstrate how God provides for the faithful. The Shunammite woman was a believer. He removed her from the famine during those seven years and then also brings her here and blesses her upon her return. It's remarkable also, to read so you don't miss this either, is that she is faithful to the worship of the Lord. The king is not. He's an idolater. He's the northern kingdom. So it's very remarkable that he, on the one hand, blesses her, even though her belief system and her commitment and her loyalty is not to the God that he really worships. Rather rather interesting. And so, uh, anyway, moving on to verse 7. And Elisha came to Damascus. And uh, we're now going to talk about uh, how uh, some intrigues with the Aram, the, 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 the people that we would think of as Syrians up there. Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. This is kind of interesting that Elisha will go that far, out of the land, up to Damascus. It's not that far in miles, but it's, it's out of the country. It's, it's, in, in, it's in Syria. He goes there uh, to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, see him. And uh, the, uh, this is unusual, obviously. Uh, and the king said to Hazael, that's one of his, his uh, uh, officials, take a present in thine hand and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover this disease? Here is a pagan king. King of Syria, telling his servant to go see Elisha and find out from the Lord whether he's going to survive or not. That's pretty interesting. It's too bad that the leadership in the northern kingdom didn't do the same thing. Just go to the Lord for their instruction rather than their idols and their whatever. So anyway, verse 9, so Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden. And came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad of king of Syria hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? Now this, this is pretty impressive. Forty camels. Now don't get the impression they're fully loaded, by the way. I understand that the experts say that what they would often do is put one gift per camel. So it, it, part of it is, is, is a question of making a show. But still, you're talking a caravan of forty camels. Um, as, a, as a gesture of the king to Elisha for responding to an inquiry here, which, uh, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. And Elisha said unto him, Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Now he's, understand, Elisha is talking to Hazael, the servant of the king. 
Elisha said unto him, Go, say unto him that thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. That sounds like double speak, doesn't it? And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Uh, let's see if I can sort this out a little bit, because it's, it's, it's from the text, it's a little hard to understand. What, what Elisha is trying to say to Haziel, that he would recover if Haziel won't interfere. But what Elisha is doing is indicating that in the state of his disease, he will recover, but he's also prophesying that Haziel is going to murder him. And Haziel realizes that as he looks, as, as, as Elisha looks him right in the eye. And as Elisha realizes that uh, Ben-Hadad, who is apparently a friend of his, he's, he feels about because the man of God wept as a result of this, because he knew that murder was going to come upon his friend. Elisha fixes a gaze upon him in the hopes, perhaps, of embarrassing him out of that deed. But privately, Haziel is probably glad because of Ben-Hadad's fate, because he, because he will be able to stand in to pick up the throne. And so God's revelation also gives the man of God insight that he weeps. You know, it's how often that is, we often think of, gee, to be a prophet and know what's coming would be exciting. But you'll notice if you study your scripture how often... It's the prophet that sees the future that weeps. The best example of that, of course, is Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet. Not only because, because his prophecies, he, he really, in a sense, presided over his dying nation before the Babylonian captivity. Uh, you remember um, John, Revelation, in chapter 10, when, the, when the, uh, he's told to take the book, and it would be sweet in his mouth, but it, to his belly it would be bitter. How off that is, it's, it's, it's good at first until you really realize the, the penalty of sin and the penalty of, ju- penalty of judgments that are coming and so forth. So that's a very typical thing. Anyway, let's move on to verse, verse 12. And Haziel said, Why weepeth, my Lord? And he answered, that's Elisha answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children and rip up their women with child. And Haziel said, But what, is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath shown me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So, so uh, Hazael's getting a, getting, getting a lot, of, uh, lot of stuff here, because at the first time, see in, in verse 13, Hazael pretends to be offended by this disclosure. He feigns the humility, Am I a dog that I do that, and so forth. But also, before it's over here, uh, Elisha actually adds a prophecy that Haziel will be king over Syria. And uh, so, moving on to verse 14. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldest surely recover. Which is sort of true, and yet it ain't true. Huh? It came to pass on the morrow... They took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, and spread it on his face so that he died. In other words, he suffocated him. And Haziel reigned in his stead. So he suffocated him in a way, apparently, that would create the impression. See, you know, it's really tragic. Elisha had predicted that he would be king. If he would have been smart, he would have waited for it to happen. That's what David did relative to Saul. He wouldn't touch Saul. He waited till God's timing. Haziel could have 
rested on that prophecy. But no, he took matters in his own hand. And he murdered the king. I might mention, by the way, back in 1 Kings 19, you may recall that Elijah, the predecessor of Elisha, had previously anointed Haziel as king. It didn't hit us then because we didn't have all the background. But um, so the uh, this event that is here reported is in effect a fulfillment of that prophecy, even though it was done by Elijah, Elijah's uh, protege rather than Elijah personally. And now you say, gee, why would God have Haziel, um, this cruel guy, uh, 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 uh be in, be in a situation to dominate Israel. See, by being, they're going to be very, the Syrians are going to be very, very powerful. And this is part of God's discipline for His people. It's very, very disturbing, and it's yet very, very insightful to recognize as we go through here, God cares especially for His own people. And here are His own people that are disobedient. He goes through all these elaborate things to try to get their attention, to judge them. His focus is on His people. Uh, he is not ignoring the others, because we see him take care of the Shunammite woman, he took care of Naaman. But the focus is on the people that he's called. And that's disturbing, because if he's called us, then his focus is on us, and he expects more of us than he might of others, to whom much is given, much is required. But anyway, uh, let's move on to verse 16. In the fifth year of Jerome, the son of Ahab, in other words, this is a northern kingdom guy, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being then king of Judah in the south, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, um, 32 years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Now, Jehoshaphat appointed his son Jehoram as co-regent the year he went off to battle with Ahab at Ramoth Gilead. Uh, And uh, he probably thought he was going to be out of the country for a long time, but in any case... uh, Jehoram evidently remained in Jerusalem to run the country while his dad was gone. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat's role, uh, sole reign in Judah was when Ahab's son Jehoram, that's in the northern kingdom, began to rule in Israel. It was the second year of Jehoram's co-regency with Jehoshaphat. So there's some overlap, but anyway. And by the way, I'll tell you right up front, if you start trying to spend a lot of attention on the chronology and reconcile this, it's a very ambitious task because they keep records differently, north and south, and they don't do it consistently. In the north and in the south, at different times, they change the methods. So there are libraries full of experts who have tried to sort out what they call the chronology of the kings. The difference in rendering isn't great, a few years here and a few years there. It's not like there's some profound issue behind here, but just understand that it's a non-trivial task to try to really pay attention to this. And I have adopted, I pretty much follow... Uh, the uh, Bible uh, knowledge uh, commentary as an example because it's very detailed and just to pick one rather than I'm not I, I have not tried to litter our notes with examples where they differ and stuff because it doesn't amount to a lot. Just be sensitive. If you're going to get into the, you can't get into that subject a little bit. Either really get into it or pass. You know, it's one of those things. You follow me? But uh, in any case, uh, let's go on to verse 18. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. That's bad news. In other words, uh, Ahab was one of the worst of the bunch up till that time. And um, he is he is doing the same thing. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is... when it says, See, understand who we're talking about here. We're talking about Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. We're talking about a king of the southern kingdom, who marries the daughter of Jezebel. 
Okay? And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. See, if he was a king of Israel in the northern kingdom, that's one thing, but he's not. He's the south. He, he, he's following the, the, the pattern, the cultural uh, culture of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel, you might add, was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David his servant's sake, as he promised him to give him always a light and to his children. So, in other words, this king is bad news. He married Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. That's bad news right there. We're going to talk a lot about her in a little bit, so uh, we'll get into that more in more detail. But um, even though he's at bad news, God is gracious to the southern kingdom because of his promise to David. And that's going to echo all through here, that uh, his commitment to David. Because it'll, it pleases God to, to, to do that. If for no other reason, then his whole program of redemption is, is organized through the line of David, to the ultimate son of David, namely Jesus Christ. Anyway, verse 20, In his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. Now, by the way, just before I leave uh, Jehoram here, he was one of Judah's evil kings. In the, in the southern kingdom, there's some good guys, some bad guys. This is one of the bad guys. It's interesting, by the way, something else about him. Second Kings here mentions only two of the unfortunate events that marked the reign of Jehoram. One of them that's not included in your text, but you need to be aware of to follow what's going to come on later. Uh, he murdered six of his brothers. And most commentators take for granted that the one that talked to his wife is the one that talked him into it for some reasons that'll come, come forward later. And so, because no other Judean king practiced such a thing. But Athaliah herself did the same thing when she later rules. And we'll talk about that in the next session in more detail. But, uh, okay, now, now get in, in verse 20 here where the, the days of Edom revolted. You see, Edom had come under control of Judah under Jehoshaphat. And uh, he defeated a, a coalition of kingdoms that included Edom. Back, and this is in Second Chronicles 20, if you want to look it up. At that time, an Edomite deputy may have been put in charge on the throne uh, uh, in place of an Edomite king because they're in subject, subjection to Judah. And uh, Edom, helped, Edom helped Israel and Judah in their campaign against King Mesha, you may recall, in chapter 3 of Second Kings before in the previous sessions. But now in Jehoram's day, Edom finally rebels and set up their king. That's the, they not only revolted, but they made a king for themselves. So they, they, they threw off the provisional government, if you will. So Jehoram went over Zaire, and that might be a, by the way, a translation of Seir, which is another idiom before Edom, Mount Seir. Anyway, and all the chariots with him. And he rose by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him about, and the captains of the chariots and the people fled unto their tents. And yet Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now Libna was located southwest of Jerusalem near the border of Philistia. Uh, the um, rebellion seems to have been precipitated by Philistine influence. We get that from Second Chronicles, not from Second Kings. There's a lot of parallel passages here. And we're not going to try to reconcile all. We'll just pick what we need to, to follow the thread. So the, see, the Philistines invaded Judah in Jehoram's day, and of course Judah suffered a lot of, uh, I mean, yeah, Judah suffered a lot of losses at their hands. And the Arabians also rebelled. Both Philistia and Arabia uh, feared and paid tribute to uh, uh, Jehoram's father. 
But uh, Judah's weaker under Jehoram, partly because of his wickedness. So his father had set these things up, but with this, the young guy taking over, they're taking the opportunity to throw him off because he doesn't have the strength. So he's not, first of all, he's not faithful. That's one of the, one of the reasons the nation is weak is because he's, he's, he's in apostasy. There's a lesson there. Anyway, the rest of the acts of Jehoram and all that he did are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And Jehoram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. And this guy is going to be bad news. In the twelfth year of Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, begin to reign. So there's a Jehoram, son of Ahab, in the northern kingdom, and there's Jehoram, the son of uh, 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 Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, in the south. Now, some Bibles will spell them differently to keep you getting confused. I elected not to do that because I think it's important to be tuned to it so you discern it by context. You with me? Here's a case where they don't have the same name. They're cotemporaneous, which makes it a little more complicated. But the text will usually tell you whether from the context or explicitly which one they're talking about. Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And here's the sentence. And his mother's name was Athaliah. I think that's the way you pronounce it. Athaliah, anyway. Uh, the daughter of Omri, the king of Israel. Let's be a little more clear. Omri was the father of Ahab. And Ahab married Jezebel. So Athaliah, uh, the way to remember Athaliah is she is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab says that not only because she literally was, but she also was in spirit. She is a mean there's a term for that, but I shouldn't use it in polite company. <laughs> I'll let you draw your own conclusions from the text. Anyway, getting back to uh, Ahaziah. He walked, in the, he walked in the way of the house of Ahab. Now that's an indictment. He's in the south. He's part of Judah, not Israel, yet he's following the pattern of the idol-worshipping, idolaters, apostate, uh, uh, Baal-worshippers in the north. And did evil in the sight of the Lord as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. You got the picture, gang? You'll need to understand that as we go here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. His Word.